0: The views and opinions of the EDGE podcast do not necessarily represent those of EducationUSA, U.S. Department of State, or the U.S. Government. Here on the EDGE podcast, we are taking a closer look at EducationUSA's global network and how that network fosters inclusive communities. Through discussions on outreach to students with disabilities, the rewards of international student recruitment in underrepresented regions, educational access for refugees, and recruiting diaspora populations, will begin to find out how we can best support inclusivity in recruitment, admissions, and education. Thank you for joining us. On today's episode, we are diving into a topic that spans countries and continents, something historical and contemporary, and something, or someone, with the power to change the world, the refugee. Refugees are everywhere. According to the United Nations Refugee Agency, an unprecedented 108.4 million people worldwide were forcibly displaced at the end of 2022. In other words, more than one in every 74 people on earth has been forced to flee. It is important to note that we use the term refugee in this podcast episode to capture a wide variety of lived experiences and circumstances. This includes displaced people with recognized refugee status, asylum seekers and people who are stateless or whose nationality is disputed. Many of them have crossed borders and are living in temporary accommodation like camps or in more permanent accommodations. But many people who are forced to flee never cross an international border and they remain displaced within their own countries. Known as internally displaced people or IDPs, they account for 58% of all forcibly displaced people. Ongoing or reignited conflict, widespread violence, insecurity, and human rights violations have driven forced displacement across the globe. You're probably familiar with the countries and many crises from the news headlines. Ukraine, Gaza, Syria, Afghanistan, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Ethiopia, Venezuela, Guatemala, Honduras, or Burma. One thing that binds all these headlines together is that individuals are swept up. Basic needs and housing are often out of reach. And so is education. Among these people are thousands of university-aged youth looking for opportunities to start or continue their higher education. When we look at higher education enrollment, this gap becomes visible. Only about 7% of refugees have access to higher education, compared with 40% higher education enrollment among non-refugees. Why is meeting the higher education needs of refugees so important? Alan Goodman, CEO of the Institute of International Education, sees it this way.
1: The fact is, today we have a lot more refugees than any time in human history. Uh, The popular image of a refugee is in a temporary camp uh, needing shelter, uh, a woman, a child. But the reality is that many of the camps are becoming permanent. And they have people that started university. They have also people that finish secondary education in the camp. And they should have a future, too. They should have a place to go. uh, And that's higher education. And the world will be a much better place if we don't have a lost generation, which we're shaping up to have a lost generation, because so many of the refugees can't finish their education. So it, it should be a natural part of what higher education does today, uh, and in this century, especially because we have such a massive refugee crisis. All of us in higher education, whether we're teaching or in the admissions process, with the student aid process. Uh, We should want refugees because they win Nobel Prizes. They make terrific students. They thrive when they get the chance to succeed in education. And it also gives the American student that's at the campus an opportunity. Everybody knows the world has a lot of refugees. Most American students have never seen one, never talked to one in person. The refugees are, are... are like a country, and our students need to know what it's like to talk with a refugee, and also to be inspired by what they've overcome and had to overcome to get to Indiana or Chicago or California or Massachusetts. Uh, and, and how are they going to do that if the refugee isn't there? Uh, but this is this is a no-risk thing for American higher education. Our Some of our greatest teachers, our greatest scientists, uh, greatest businesswomen and men came to America as refugees, Uh, and we're the better for it, and we'll be the better for taking many more of them in the future. So they're doing things for the successor generation. They're also empowered often to help reunite families because the families could be spread out all over the world. And when they in, are in America, they realize how how can I get my sister who's in Lebanon, how can I get my brother who's in uh, Turkey, how can I get my parents who were separated, and one is in Greece, one is someplace else, how can we all get together uh, and be in one place? And often education is the pathway that that starts to help the second generation, the next generation, the parents' generation, because Students in American campuses feel empowered. And they suddenly realize they can do things that you can't do if you're not on an American campus. And so this is a way for a U.S. institution to help people we would never think of helping. And I've often seen families reunited by a single refugee that has the scholarship, uh, does well the first year. And, and figures out that for the next three they can help the rest of the family. And then they do. And And that's just just what we ought to be thinking about. you help one, and the ripple effect of doing that will help two generations.
0: Now, we would like to dig deeper into the perspective of U.S. higher education institutions. What are the challenges of recruiting students from refugee populations? And most importantly, how can U.S. institutions better serve refugee populations? And for that, we have two fantastic guests who will share their perspectives and experiences. Brenda and Jen, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Before we get started, I would like to ask each of you to introduce yourself and your work.
2: I am Dr. Brenda Tooley. I work at Grand Valley State University in Western Michigan. I'm the associate director of the Center for Undergraduate Scholar Engagement. What I really am is uh, primarily the director of the fellowships office at Grand Valley.
3: Um, So my name is Jen Murray. I'm from Bard College, where I am the dean of international studies and director of our Institute for International Liberal Education.
0: Brenda, knowing about the gap in higher education enrollment of refugee students and the NTAP potential that there is, what are some of the obstacles that these students face and obstacles that a university or college faces when it comes to recruiting?
2: It's a wonderful question. And there are, of course, many different ways to approach it and any number of intersecting answers. If one is talking about students who have fled conflict and are now in camps or with very little documentation outside of their home country, the, the obstacles are huge. Um, they They don't necessarily understand the U.S. admissions process, which is not uniform to begin with, it it is complex at best. They don't have the documentation. Very often they don't have the financial means and thus they don't have uh, the means to document their ability to afford the cost of study in the United States, which is a criterion for um, an F-1 visa, right? So kind of right from the start, those students face huge obstacles. If we're talking about students And this is a harder population to capture, right? So I'm not sure where the percentages derive, but there are students who are unable to pursue their education within their countries, or they are with families and some means outside of their countries, but education for whatever reason is difficult for them to pursue. Those students are are more likely candidates for admittance into an American college or university. They are more likely to have some degree of documentation. They are more likely to have some degree of family support because whether through foresight or luck or some combination, they and their families got out before things got really bad. It's those students from conflict zones that I have mostly been working with. Um, Some young people, for example, fled Syria because they did not want to get involved in the mandatory military service within their country. They ended up elsewhere with very limited opportunities, in part because they couldn't get their ID documentation renewed because they couldn't go back, right, because they had left because of military service, which then meant they didn't have ready access to documentation to get to the United States, um, so so kind of beyond the capturable populations, there's a huge uh, pool of students who are deeply worthy of, of a university education, ready for it in 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 many ways. Uh, it, a tremendous benefits uh, to the U.S. communities they could join, for whom there are just obstacles. They need they need support. They need admissions teams that understand what's going on with them. They need uh, kind of personalized support through the admissions process and to a degree after they come to campus. Many of their needs are very similar to other international students, but there can be definitely be particular needs that they would then have after they arrive, if they're going to flourish.
3: And I think in addition, you know, if we think about students who maybe um, or young people who maybe have had a more persistent displacement, there's certainly resources is a big part of this, even resources to get the kind of English language verification they need. As well as, uh, you know, I think Institutions that want to provide education and access for these students, I think, erring on the side of generosity, even though that, that may be hard institutionally, is the way to go. Um, many times, students in these circumstances are also expected, perhaps, or feel a burden of responsibility toward their families. So, the you know, work is something important. Both where they may be, that may be one of the choices they're making in you know that that hinders the ability to access education. so if there's ways to recognize that because these students are coming with with a history that you're sort of typical if if there is such a thing as a typical international student or more traditional um, f one type of student, I think that's something to think about and and some Certainly the access to documentation and maybe the fact that there may be breaks or inconsistencies. There may have been a they may have had their secondary, even primary education in a in a system and an infrastructure that was is just not as sort of solid as um as those students who are, you know, in a stable, safer environment.
0: Jen and Brenda, thank you both so much. You touched on the lack of documentation as a main hurdle. If you don't have that, how does that affect the students and admission? In the U.S., we any most admission teams
3: are going to expect to see either proof of high school graduation, um, whatever that might look like in the country, the student's home country, or if there is an equivalency option, such as there is here in the U.S., um, that you know that sort of proof of secondary completion. And for students who don't have that, um, you know, that I think that's a number one hurdle, even though they may perhaps have already been enrolled in university. So, um, I think it for admission teams, if they can have some flexibility of thinking about other types of evidence of the ability to perform at the college level and whether that's an alternate admission pathway, such as um, essays or tests. I think what we're also seeing is the development of micro credentials for some of these students that can provide an alternate document or proof of, you know, the type of skills a student needs to to perform well in a U.S. classroom. You know, I think being flexible and recognizing trying to meet the students where they are and talking about what they do have. And maybe that's an interview with a professor they have access to or someone and, and working within your own um, institution to, to have buy-in that what are we, you know, what is our baseline going to be given these special circumstances so that you're keeping your admission process, you, you're, you know, you want to hold the integrity of it while trying to be kind of flexible and recognize that there will be qualified talented students who simply can't show you um the document you would normally expect to see
0: brenda you have a lot of experience in working with refugee students what can international educators on the admissions side do to help the students navigate that process
2: i would so agree with jan that um Without compromising the integrity of the process at one's university or college, being sensitive to where students are, uh, working with them along the pipeline. So, especially at larger places, the admissions process is a—it's monster. It's a machine. I mean, there are you know thousands and thousands of applicants, and so to jump, I think a little bit to to your second question. Buy-in is super important. Working, if if you're in an admissions team, then working with your colleagues. If you are an academic associate deanish type, then making sure that, that your colleagues in admissions and admissions in the registrar's office know what's happening and understand uh, the process and the, the kinds of materials that are likely to come their way and why the university or college cares about this and values the process. I, I've been in selective private liberal arts colleges most of my professional career. I, I, I would say that the smaller private institutions are somewhat more able to act swiftly and to to kind of organize things to, to be personalized. In their outreach, it's just harder. It's not that larger institutions can't do it or don't care, but the mechanisms are just much, much, much larger, and the processes are often much, much, much more automated. Um, and so, how to kind of how to how to step in to your particular institution's systems, and how to affect the networks that you need to, to pull together. Uh, to effectively help students through the process is huge. I think also the other thing would be, and again, this is more on the ISS side, um, international student services side, um, a number of students who were able to come to the United States to study were then able to, to move into TPS, into temporary protected status, which then can be a good thing but also complicated. Um, Some students were able to move into citizenship pathway programs after arrival. Those are wonderful opportunities. I'd argue that a college or university needs a knowledgeable ISS office who can help students navigate what are sometimes fairly dramatically in rapidly
0: changing federal regulations and federal opportunities? Clearing the hurdles and aligning processes and stakeholders on campus is no small feat. It often means going the extra mile. I know that you both have gone many extra miles to get a refugee student on your campus finally. Why would you encourage other international educators to join you? We
2: were simply able
0: to. Offer spaces to students
2: who changed for the better the dynamic of our classrooms. These students perhaps struggled in their first semester with college level English, but they caught up so very quickly and they found faculty mentors and they spoke in class out of perspectives that uh, Midwestern kids just would not have. For the most part, these were on, on the US side, they were from the Midwest. And so to deepen the conversations that happen in college classrooms is to benefit everyone, to learn skills of listening and empathy, make for, I would argue, a a more thoughtful and better able to communicate citizenry. We have a huge global footprint in this world uh, as U.S. citizens, and we can help our students understand that. I think the better off we are now and will be in the future. So uh, those are, those are reasons that it, it is, it is good for everyone on a college campus when students come from many different perspectives, from many different places and are able to talk and learn together.
0: From Brenda and Jen, we heard that recruiting, admitting, and supporting refugee students on campus is not easy, but totally worth it. Some of you listening may be involved in working with refugee students already, and some of you may be listening and wondering what they can do and where to start. I would like to introduce Jessica Clarkson, who works as a program specialist in the Student Emergency Initiatives Program at the Institute of International Education. We ask her how she got started and what keeps her inspired in her work. Here is her story. I'm Jessica Clarkson. I've worked in
4: college access with vulnerable populations globally for a little over 10 years. First at a U.S. university, then while living abroad in Zambia, and now at IIE, or the Institute of International Education where I manage a portfolio of programs that all aim to increase displaced persons' access to higher education and durable solutions. I entered the field of international education after having experienced several study abroad experiences that were hugely impactful for me. At a certain point in my education, though, I thought more and more about people who were forced to travel internationally rather than doing it by choice, and I became curious about the differences in those experiences, both the valuable perspectives that people in that situation bring, but also the trauma they've experienced and and what that means for us as a global community. I wrote my master's thesis on refugee students and their experiences if they're in the studying in the US and they have a refugee travel document how do they view their transition from a student to a graduate to a graduate and they do face a lot of unique challenges compared to other international students related to where they have the right to work where they have the right to live and where they want to live and, and pursue their livelihoods despite all of the challenges The message that came through time and again in my interviews was that this opportunity to pursue higher education in the U.S. did open up greater opportunities for them than they would have had had they not been able to come and study in the United States. I will say, though, these students are not just facing the same challenges as international students, and the main difference is that they don't have access to a durable solution when they graduate. So they're still, even if they get funding for their undergraduate or graduate education, the question of where they have the right to live remains unresolved. But I think working with students who've and and welcoming students from refugee and displaced backgrounds on campus really brings a different aspect of our, our global community right to campus and right to classrooms and right to campus communities in a way that you it's just different than um what you would learn in a classroom or even through a study abroad experience i think it's different to have classmates in class with you um addressing a wide array of of topics and subjects and and they're bringing their personal experience maybe living in a refugee camp or, or dealing with um, how conflict has affected their family. And it's kind of flipping the script of, of course, they have a lot to bring, but I think there's also just a responsibility on the side of institutions to, to uh, recruit and access this global population. I think it's about how institutions see themselves as a part of the global community. There is this population out there they are not accessing higher education at the same rates as the rest of the population. So even if it may not be in our front door, this is a huge portion of the global population, and we have a responsibility to to support and address it. I think there are valid concerns about what can happen when a huge portion of of a large number of people feel excluded from systems and opportunities for growth. And there's a role that we can all play, including colleges and universities in the U.S. and abroad. One thing I'll say is that there's, I think we're in this moment of growing awareness and an increase in initiatives and infrastructure being built to support. Access to higher education for displaced populations—it's actually a really exciting time. I think I'll—I'll I'll say that to contrast the—to to contrast the depressing statistics. Yes, there's a lot of work that—that's left to be done, but there's also a lot of momentum around doing the work. And in addition to working with the students and having that make such an impression on me and motivate me. I've also been motivated by my colleagues in the field who are addressing access to higher education for vulnerable populations from a lot of different perspectives. Every institution does have a responsibility and every educator has a responsibility to look at what they can do, what, they, what they're what they in a position to advocate for, and
0: to do it. We hope that this episode inspires you to dive deeper into how to support refugee students to get to your campus and on your campus. We learned today that keys to that are looking at processes in admissions and allowing flexibility and building networks across campus. If you want to do that, there are many resources, best practices and projects in the US and globally. We have asked our guests to recommend a few of them. Good places to start are the United Nations Refugee Agency website, the Welcome Core on Campus initiative, and the Article 26 Backpack Project at UC Davis. We will have links to all of them in the show notes. Thank you to our guests and you for joining us today. We hope this will be the beginning of a conversation that will culminate at our in-person workshop at the 2024 Education USA Forum in Washington, DC. The registration is already open and I hope to see many of you there. Next time, join us to discuss how to connect with and support international students from diaspora populations.